Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm about to ask you a really stupid question, but here we go. How does the offer of free beer sound? Sounds like the greatest offer on earth. And as a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that free beer. Thanks to my friends at beer52.com, you can taste eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to the website, beer52.com forward slash party. That's B-W-E-R, the number five, the number two, dot com forward slash party and cover just £4.95 for the postage. On top of that... Political party listeners get an extra two free beers, so that's a total of ten free beers. That is a crate of beer. Beer 52 travels the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries the earth has to offer. And each month, they send you a different theme. Themes have included Germany. I mean, that one would have been amazing. Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, Finland, and even more but they haven't forgotten their roots. They're a UK company and they're passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in. You can leave at any time and your first box is sent to you next day. As well as the best, most interesting beer money can buy, your case includes award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, which takes you through the different themes of the UK craft beer scene, and you get a snack thrown in just to top it all off. And you can pick the sort of beers you want. If you don't like dark beers, you can pick the light beers. Just go to beer52.com forward slash party to get your first crate of eight beers free. And don't forget political party customers, because you're very special people. Get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's beer52.com forward slash party. I mean, that would be a great night in, wouldn't it? Hello and welcome to the Political Party. I hope this episode finds you well. Following last week's chat with Tom Tugendhat about the R- Russia report and just the brilliant briefing that Tom gave us, I wanted to get more detail on what Russia gets up to, which is why I'm so delighted that Bill Browder came on the show this week. He is exceptional. And we talk about this in detail, but he used to run Hermitage Capital Management, which was, for a while, the largest foreign investor, foreign portfolio investor in Russia. Um, He had a portfolio of around $4.5 billion in Russia. He was expelled. He was tried and found guilty in his absence. His story is incredible. But you will have heard of Bill because of Sergei Magnitsky, who was his lawyer, who was tortured and beaten. And the Magnitsky Act, which came into force in the UK recently, which was signed by Obama in 2012, which other governments around the world have adopted in order to prevent effectively human rights abuses and and, and interference, which has two major planks. We talk about those, but it's basically freezing assets uh, and visa bans. And that's how to hit Russia and other regimes like that where it hurts. Bill, I mean, this episode at times is quite heavy. He talks about Sergei, about what he went through at the hands of the Russian authorities, the history of the case, now he came to meet Sergei, but also uh, about Dominic Raab and, and the work that he has done in effectively honouring Sergei's legacy by bringing in these new rules. Um, so this is a very powerful personal testimony about what it's like to be alienated by Russia, to have Russia after you, and and what they can do, the severity and the extent. So this is it's just overwhelming, really. Uh, it was fantastic talking to Bill about his experience and also just how he's managed to get a positive out of such a harrowing ordeal. So, um, I'm not sure enjoy is the right word, but this is this is just exceptional, and Bill is such an impressive man. Um, so, I shall leave you in the hands uh, of Bill Browder.
I'm delighted to be joined today by Bill Browder, who's the CEO and co-founder of Hermitage Capital Management, which specialised in investing in Russian markets. Uh, Bill, you've risen to prominence not just as a result of, of uh, your, your investment activity in Russia, but because of your, your tireless campaigning on behalf of uh, your old friend Sergei Magnitsky, and, and that's led to the Magnitsky Act in various countries recently here, um, first of all in the United States. We'll talk about all of that. But, but let's just go right back to the start. How did you initially get involved investing in Russia? I have a very unusual family background. My grandfather was the general secretary of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. He, he, was the, um, uh, he ran for president uh, against Roosevelt in 36 and 40 on the communist ticket. He was imprisoned by Roosevelt in 41, pardoned in 42, expelled from the Communist Party in 1945 for being too much of a capitalist, and then persecuted during the 1950s for being a communist. And so I was, I was born in 1964, I'm, I'm 56 years old. And when I was going through my teenage rebellion, I was trying to figure out a great way to rebel from this family of communists. And, and uh, I tried out various things. I grew my hair long. Um, you can't tell now by looking at me, um, but uh, it grew into an afro. Um, that didn't upset my family. <laughs> I, fall, I followed the Grateful Dead around the country, the rock band, the Grateful Dead, uh, yeah. for three months. That didn't upset my family. But then I finally came up with the perfect way of upsetting my family, which was to put on a suit and tie and to become a capitalist. And that really did upset my family. So I became a capitalist. And I ended up going to Stanford Business School in 1987. And I graduated business school in 1989. And 1989 was a very auspicious year because that was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, one day I had an epiphany, which was that if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And that's what I set out to do. And I've, I've, I moved from California to London. Uh, I set up shop, I set up home and shop in London. And I eventually moved uh, in 1996 to Moscow. And I set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund. And that, that investment fund grew to become the largest foreign investment fund in the country. And for a while, it was the best gig you could ever have. I was, it was like the Wild West, the Klondike, uh, until it turned very ugly. So you, you go to Russia, uh, in, uh, in a way, you're kind of honouring your, your grandfather's, uh, the influence that Russia had had on your family, I suppose. Definitely, definitely. The, um, on one hand, I was rebelling, but on the other hand, I was going back to my family's roots. I mean, my, grand, my, my grandfather had, had actually gone, uh, he was a labor union organizer in Wichita, Kansas, and he was eventually spotted by the communists who invited him to Russia in 1927. And he moved to Moscow and he met a Russian girl who became my grandmother. My father was born in Moscow. And then they returned to America in 1932 when he became the leader of the Communist Party. And so in a certain way, I was following in his footsteps. I went out to Moscow. I met a Russian girl who became my wife um, and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, your, your uh, grandfather um, got himself in trouble with American presidents. You found yourself in, in trouble with a Russian president. Um, I mean, it must have been such an exciting time to be in Russia, the fall of the Soviet Union. They start to privatize huge swathes of their infrastructure. I mean, it's really easy now to see Russia as such a perilous place. Did it feel perilous then? It felt perilous, but in, in a different way than it feels perilous now. So when I showed up there, it was, it was total chaos. The, 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 the main philosophy behind the government's plans at that time were that they wanted to go from communism to capitalism. They said, we want to become capitalists. And they figured the best way of making capitalists was to take all the property at the, that time was owned by the state. So it was all state property and to pass it to private individuals through what they called mass privatization. And so they, the, the idea was that everyone would, would end up owning a piece of the Russian economy and because they owned a piece of the Russian economy, they want to continue with capitalism, not become, not go back to communism, and that would be the end of the story. 
it got all messed up though because it was like building a house where they didn't put in the plumbing and electricity and the plumbing and electricity was the rules and the property rights and so they ended up creating this capitalist system and 40 individual i'm sorry 22 individuals ended up with 40 percent of the country and so they completely messed it up but at the time it was it was just the most exciting thing in the world you could buy a, a share on a monday and by Friday, that share might be worth 20 times what you paid on a Monday. It was just total gold rush, Klondike type of situation. And is that the flaws early in the system? Is that corruption or is just that incompetence or is it a bit of both? Well, I think that, that, that it was both. They, they designed the system. The people who were going to exploit the system designed the system to exploit it. And so it all looked good on paper at a very high level. But anybody who knew what was going on knew that it could be abused. And the people who abused it most were these 22 oligarchs, which, who probably had a very intimate relationship in designing it. And to the extent that they didn't design it, then they worked to, together and bribed the Russian ministers to make sure that they ended up with all this stuff. And so you ended up in a country where 22 individuals owned everything and everyone else was in destitute poverty. It was really ugly. And it wasn't really twinned with any meaningful political reform. There were, well, there was, there was this moment when, at the time when the Soviet Union broke up, where, where Boris Yeltsin, who was the president at the time, said, let's, um, let's just make a, a place where, where you have freedom of, uh, you have democracy, you have freedom of speech, you have um, inter, uh, independent media. The trouble was that all that stuff worked only to the extent that, that um, you didn't have um, somebody, try, somebody at the top trying to abuse it. And, and that's what happened with Vladimir Putin. He came into power and took all those things away and nobody could do anything about it. So you're in a situation where you, you, you don't own these companies, but you've got significant shareholdings in, in companies like Gazprom and you are what they call an, an activist shareholder where you, you don't control the company, but you use your shares to try and improve the culture of those uh, businesses. At that stage, I mean, it, you know, in, 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 any, in any business scenario, when you're dealing with certainly utility providers on that scale that are exporting it globally, um, would be difficult, the politics of that. How more difficult was doing that in Russia? Well, it was weird. So, so when you call me an activist investor, that, that in the world of finance, that, that term has, has a different meaning in London or New York than it does in Russia. So in London or New York, you might be an activist investor and you might say, you know, the company is too complicated. You should streamline it. The, the CEO should divest divisions that, that, that aren't core to their mission or, or, something, or something like that. In Russia, you had the CEO of a company doing, stealing $5 billion worth of assets off the balance sheet and by selling them to his brother for $100,000. So, so it was really more like being a um, policeman than to be a sort of uh, financier. We, we, we were dealing with major, probably the, the biggest frauds that have ever existed in the history of business were going on in Russia. And so, so that was what activist investing was all about, exposing the stealing and trying to stop the stealing. I guess what I meant was it, it's slightly more dangerous for you to stand up to stuff like that in, in Russia than it might be in the UK. Well, that's definitely true. So, uh, yeah, in the UK, you know, maybe they may, maybe an activist investor gets a bad article written. Maybe, maybe someone even sues them in court, but in the Russia, they come after you with, with their guns blazing, literally they, they, you know, people are shooting at you if, if they um, don't like you. And so you don't just risk your money, you risk your life. Your relationship with, with the Russian government, uh, 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 and I suppose that, that culture began to break down. Um, you, you, were, you were denied entry to Russia, you were uh, deported to, to Britain and then, and then convicted in absence of, uh, of tax fraud. Uh, before that, though, were there any warning signs that action like that was on the horizon? Well, that's what was so strange about it. Normally, you would get some sense of that. I mean, yes, we were, we were fighting with different people and, you know, we would expose their crimes and they would fight back and they would accuse us of things and so on. But it was all very much in the business arena, never 
with the government. And then all of a sudden, one day I'm flying back. It was, in, it was November 13th, 2005. I was in London for the weekend. And I'm flying back to um, Moscow, where I, lived, where I lived for 10 years. And I get stopped at the border without any warning, totally, um, uh, totally surprised. They arrest me. They put me in, in the detention center of the airport. They keep me there for 15 hours. I don't, I'm not sure whether I'm being, uh, whether I'm going to be sent to Siberia or deported. And then, and then finally, the, the next morning uh, at 11 o'clock, they grab me very quickly and frog march me up onto an Aeroflot flight, send me back to London, and declare me a threat to national security not to be allowed to come into Russia ever again. When you were initially arrested, when you're dealing with someone like Putin, that must have been pretty scary. I mean, it, a, a number of things could have happened to you at that point. Well, when I was sitting in that detention cell, I, I thought more than likely I was going to be sent to Siberia. And I thought I would probably spend the next 10 years of my life in jail. And I thought that maybe I wouldn't even survive the next 10 years of my life. Maybe something terrible would happen to me in jail. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty scary. And, and it, uh, let me tell you, it was, I don't know if you've ever watched that movie Argo um, about the diplomats, the yes. Canadian diplomats who were stuck in in um in tehran and and they uh, and they come up with a plan to to evacuate them pretending that they're to move some people pretend they're part of a movie crew yeah and when they're on that airplane and it takes off and they're in the air there's just the biggest feeling of relief there ever was and that was the feeling i had when i got put onto that aeroflot flight and i knew that i wasn't going to be sent to siberia and in those years where you're, uh, you know, you say that, that that tension is restricted to the business arena. Did you ever worry? Did you ever think actually things are becoming unsafe? Did you ever feel like you were being spied on or watched? Well, Russia made a transition from what I would call disorganized crime to highly organized crime. And when I first got there, it was totally disorganized crime. And so if you owned a diamond merchant business and you had a shop, a storefront, then, you know, all the mafia gangsters with their gold chains and their guns would come to your store and demand kickbacks and extortion and bribes and so on and so forth. But I was operating a, a you know, international investment fund out of an anonymous office, uh, you know, trading and securities on a stock exchange. And so nobody noticed me for a long time. But when Putin came in, he's a KGB operative and very organized, and they sort of went through everybody in the country and just figured out who they could shake down. And it went from disorganized crime to highly organized crime. And, and the, the, the criminals were the guys running the country. Have you ever met him? I've never met him, no, or spoken to him. I mean, he's obviously said a few things about you over the years. It must, it must be so strange and unnerving. It's, I mean, it's horrible anyway to think there are people out there that don't like you or that would say unpleasant things about you. When one of them's Vladimir Putin, that must be deeply unsettling. It is. It was. And, and the most interesting moment of, of Vladimir Putin's talking about me was in the summer of 2018. Uh, Putin was meeting uh, Donald Trump in Helsinki for the first ever summit between the two presidents. And they had this secret meeting where that no, nobody was allowed in other than Putin, Trump, and one of Putin's translators. No members of the U.S. government were there, no, no note takers. They had this secret meeting for two hours. At the, end, at, 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 at the end of the meeting, they held a press conference. And at the press conference, uh, a writer's journalist stood up. And the writer's journalist asked the question to Putin, are you going to hand over the 12 Russian GRU officers who have just been indicted by Robert Mueller uh, a few days ago? And Putin, who knew this, was, this question was coming, smiled and said, well, we just talked about that with the president. And, and yes, of course we would hand them over, but <clears throat> uh, this would have to be a reciprocal arrangement. And, and in return, we would want President Trump to hand over Bill Browder and the 11 US government officials who are part of his international criminal syndicate. And at that point, the Reuters journalist then asked 
President Trump, what do you think about this? And Trump said, I think it's a great idea. And for four days, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be handed over by President Trump or not. And it was only when the U.S. Senate held a vote on whether or not I and, and the 11 others should be handed over. And they voted 98 to 0 that we shouldn't. That Trump, about an hour before the vote, he knew what the vote was going to be, um, walked back his statement and said, no, we're not going to hand anyone over. That must have been the longest four days of your life where your own president is. When it gets to that stage where the president of, of the United States is potentially going to be complicit in you being extradited to Russia and then God knows what happens to you. I mean, it's in terms of Trump's openness to, to Russia and Russian corruption and how just he did all this in plain sight... Is it something you've ever discussed with, with members of the Republican Party or, or people close to, to Donald Trump? Well, there's a number of senators who are part of that 98 to 0 who were Republicans who very strongly supported me and, and under no circumstances would, would have allowed or, or, or in any way um, uh, uh, helped to hand me over. And they, and, they got, and, and they made their point very clear. And so, I mean, it's people are very simplistic about what goes on in Washington, but there's a lot of different opinions in Washington. And yes, Donald Trump is very powerful. And yes, in some certain circumstances, he supports Vladimir Putin, but doesn't mean that, that every Republican is in lockstep behind him. There's a lot of very decent people in the Republican Party who don't have any support for how he, he, he um, praises Vladimir Putin. Let's get into how you, you come to meet Sergei Magnitsky, because the story is absolutely incredible. Hermitage's office are raided by the Russia Interior Ministry, and then they then effectively hand over the company to organized criminals who then pretend that the company is running a debt so that they can get a tax rebate from the government. Have I effectively summarized what happened? Yeah, well done. It's a good, you've done a great job. It, 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 I mean, it's a highly complex, highly complex fraud that you've uh, very beautifully summarized. And the bottom line is this, that the, we, we paid $230 million of taxes in 2006 to the Russian government. And what this group of officials, corrupt officials and organized criminals working together did was they organized an illegal $230 million tax refund from the Russian government to themselves using our companies that they stole from us through a, an identity theft. And the way we figured all of this out was through this young man, this lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky, who I had hired to investigate the rate of our offices and what was being done. And he came up with this unbelievable story of what had happened. And he, he was such a young, idealistic patriot in his own country, that he was sure that, that if Vladimir Putin and the powers that be were to understand that $230 million of Russian government money, money that belonged to the Russian people, had been stolen from the government by corrupt officials, he, he thought that Putin and the other senior law enforcement people in the country would be outraged, would come down like a ton of bricks on the perpetrators, and that the good guys get the bad guys. It turned out that Sergei Magnitsky was totally wrong, that there was no good guys in Vladimir Putin's Russia. Instead of going after the people who did the crime, after Sergei testified against the officials, the same officials he testified against came to his home on the 24th of November and arrested him and put him in pretrial detention and then began to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with um, no window panes in December in Moscow and no heat where he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They move him from cell to cell to cell. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers and to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million and he did so on my instructions. And Sergei was a man of incredible 
principle. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more awful than the physical pain they were inflicting on him. And he refused. And as a result, things just kept on getting worse and worse. And about six months into this, he ended up um, getting terrible pains in his stomach. Um, he ended up losing 20 kilos. And he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. About a week before the operation, they come to him again and again asked him to sign a false confession. Again, he refuses. And in retaliation, they abruptly move him uh, into a maximum security prison uh, called Butyrka. And um, uh, at Butyrka, they had no medical facilities there, no treatment. They refused him all medical treatment. His health got worse and worse and worse. And on November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition. And on that night, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. That's just the most appalling thing I've ever heard. And, and you know, where it's happened to anyone, but particularly it's happened to such a, a good person who was helping make the world a better place and standing up against corruption and injustice is, is, is just so hard to hear. I mean, I'd, I'd heard some of the stuff that had happened to him. I hadn't heard it in that detail. And obviously it's remarkable really that his legacy lives on and that these pieces of legislation around the world are, are rightfully done in his name. How did you come to meet him then? You, you hired him because he was a, a sort of an expert in tax fraud, but had you, had you met him before? Had you, did you know him by reputation? Well, so, so Sergei was, was somebody who everybody in Moscow knew. He was really the best, he was the best sort of business and tax lawyer in Russia. He just knew he could do 10 things in the time it took anyone else to do one. Just a sort of genius guy and really hardworking. And, and beyond being hardworking, he was also really just like this good family man and, and you know, reassuring character. And if you had a problem, he always could solve it. And he would, you know, you might call him up at eight o'clock at night with a problem. And then by the time you get to the office the next morning, he's like stayed up all night to solve it. And um, he was just like one of these people that you just couldn't help but, but admire. He was just like the, not flashy at all. He, 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 um, he didn't live in, a, he wasn't an oligarch. He didn't drive sports cars. He, he lived in a modest two-bedroom apartment in the center of Moscow. Um, I met him as, as our sort of firm lawyer. He had, at different times, he had done different assignments, and, and I knew how good he was. And, and he was one of these people you just sort of wanted to have around. You wanted, you know, you wanted him on your team if there was trouble. And, and that, was, that was the role that he played. And I wouldn't say that he was I, someone I knew very well. I mean, I, we had a lot of lawyers and, and accountants and you know, advisors. And, but, but he was one of the people who was always sort of filtering in and out of the picture. You know, we'd show, up, show up at Christmas parties and things like that. And, um, but when he took on this assignment to figure out where, how this tax money had been refunded, I got to see his real character. You know, you don't really know a person unless you've seen them under duress. And that's how we got to, that's how I got to know Sergei's real character, you know, not, not the superficial stuff. And boy, what a, what a man he was. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So after the raid and all that stuff happens, 
what happens to the assets of of hermitage then do they just effectively evaporate did, did you get anything back well what happened was that I, I got kicked out of russia in 2005 and i said to myself you know that that's not good if you're running in a russia specialist fund and you get kicked out of russia yeah. that's not good it's not good for business but i also said to myself when the russians turn on you they don't tend to do so mildly they tend to do so with extreme prejudice and, and kicking me out was hardly extreme prejudice. It was sort of, you know, pretty, pretty manageable. And I said to myself, what else could they do which would be really horrible? And there were two things in my mind. One is they could steal my firm's assets. And two, they could arrest my people. And so I evacuated my, my entire staff and we quickly and quietly liquidated all of our assets out of the country. And we got our money out and got our people out. And so it, when they stole this $230 million, it wasn't our money they stole. It was the taxes that we paid to the Russian government. It's the Russian government's money that was stolen. So, I mean, there's an, and there's an expression, better lucky than smart and in the world of investing. And after they kicked me out, we sold everything. And it was like 10% below the tip top highest moment in the history of the Russian stock market. And it's much, much lower today. And so we got our money out. My clients got their money back. They were happy. I got the money that I was deserved. I was happy in that front. And so it, it's, you know, it was, for me, the, the real thing that made me unhappy was the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. If it had just been this tax fraud and this attempt to steal our assets, you know, I, I can, that's just money. But when they take a human life, that's something that's, something that's un, irreplaceable. And when you say you were able to quickly and quietly liquidate your assets, we're talking billions of dollars worth. How quickly can you liquidate four or five billion not, not, dollars? Not that quickly. It, it actually took, it took about six months to do it. But, but we, we pulled it off. And what, what people often said, well, how is it that they were able to, did they let you take your money out of the country? And, and the answer is that the people in the Putin regime are truly evil, but they're highly incompetent at exercising their evil. And so it took them a long time to kind of come around and try to steal everything. And by the time they did, we had gotten all of our money out safely. At least, I mean, that is, as you say, compared to the cost of a human life, it, it is very, very small. But I, I suppose it's one less thing that... Um, that they did to you in a way. Um, so Magnitsky goes through this uh, just appalling treatment over 11 months in police custody where he's tortured and eventually murdered. While he's in police custody, were you able to find out about him? Were you able to get any contact with him at all? Well, we couldn't have any direct contact with him. They, they refused him all contact with the outside world. He wasn't even allowed to talk to his wife and children on the telephone. However, he did something which was very interesting and, and very ultimately very helpful to get justice for him, which is that everybody has their own way of dealing with duress in prison. And Sergei's way of dealing with it was to write down what was happening. And the way in which he'd write it down was in the form of criminal complaints against the authorities for their misuse and their abuse of power. And every day, he would write a complaint. And I think he, told, he wrote a total of 450 complaints during his 358 days of detention about all different mis abuses that were taking place in prison. And once a month, he would take the stack of these complaints. He would hand them to his lawyer. These are handwritten complaints. His lawyer would file them. And then we would get copies. And so because of those handwritten complaints, we got a bird's eye view into what was going on with him. And it was horrible. It was, it was the worst. So to see somebody being tortured and knowing that you, that you can't do anything about it was just, it was just horrible. It's probably the worst feeling there ever was. And so, you know, it was like, I was a voodoo, you know, they were like, I was a voodoo doll and they were, and they were like, by sticking pins into him, they were sticking pins into me. And, uh, and, and it was terrible to watch him suffer and, and to sort of somehow be so powerless to stop it. You've been arrested on, on 
Interpol warrants that have effectively then been quashed as a result of this conviction uh, in your absence in Russia, um, including when you're in Spain. I mean, does it does it still make you wonder about places you can and can't go? Do you do you ever still wonder if you're going to be arrested when you wake up in the morning? Well, I don't think I'm going to be arrested in the UK, but it does give me pause when I'm traveling internationally. And so I was arrested, as you mentioned, in Spain. I was in Spain, actually, to meet the Spanish prosecutor to give him evidence on Russian organized crime and money laundering connected to the Magnitsky case. And I show up in Spain and these two heavily armed um, Spanish national police uh, people come to my hotel room and grab me and put me under arrest and take me to the police station. And thankfully, they were there to arrest me on an Interpol warrant from Russia. And thankfully, um, the warrant uh, was, the Interpol canceled the warrant because it was illegitimate. But, you know, if I was sent back to Russia, I would suffer the same fate, same fate as Sergei Magnitsky. So, I mean, it goes without saying you've got no desire to return to Russia anytime soon. I mean, it's, it must be a shame for you that so much of your personal history, so much of your family history is tied up uh, in, in that country. I mean, I suppose unless Putin moves on and, and, and Russia becomes a functioning democracy, there's no way you can go back. Yeah, there's no way I can go back while Putin is, is, is there. But... Um... And who knows? Probably no way I can back, go back if anyone's there. I'd like to go back. I, I had really, I have really fond memories of Moscow and St. Petersburg, and I had a lot of good friends there. And and um, most people I can't be friends with there because if they are friends with me, then bad things can happen to them. And so it was, it was a shame, and it is a shame. And and I'd like to go back someday, but I'm never going to go back. I'm going to suicide mission. I go back when when it's safe for me to go back. We've talked on the show a number of times about Russian misinformation and and the way that they intervene in, in other countries and sow dissent and, and all the rest of it. And you were a victim of that as well. Andrei Nek- Nekrasov made a film about you called The Magnitsky Act Behind the Scenes, which effectively claims the Russian government wasn't responsible uh, for, for Sergei's murder. I mean, it, it's bad enough going through stuff like a friend of yours being tortured and murdered, but then to have films made which are effectively taunting you and then and then get shown around the world must be an incredible thing to go through well in the order of magnitude of of nastiness um on one end of the of the spectrum is death threats followed by uh uh, rendition plots to kidnap me and get me back to moscow followed by interpol arrest warrants and being arrested and extradited back to Russia, uh, followed by mutual legal assistance requests to gather all the information from foreign law enforcement bodies on my movements and on my activities, followed by lawsuits for, I've been sued for libel in, in, in two different jurisdictions. I've been sued in other areas. And so having some, you know, paid propagandists make some film about me is is about the least worrisome thing out there. Um, uh, I've got bigger fish to fry than that. Uh, it, it's like a, it's like a sort of mosquito. You know, you, you know, no one likes mosquito bites and they irritate you. But it's, I mean, nobody took that film seriously. And and in fact, all it showed was how desperate the Russian government was to to kind of you know say black is white and white is black, etc. The UK has had its own unique relationship with, with Russia, particularly in the last few years with uh, Litvinenko and the Skripals. When you see stuff like that, and obviously the Skripals was only a couple of years ago, does it, do you feel a bit nervous? Do you, do you feel like you're not entirely safe even, even in Britain? Um, well, I, I was really upset with the whole, the way in which the British government dealt with the um, Litvinenko murder and the, and the Skripal murder to a lesser extent. Because th- these were effectively acts of war uh, on British soil using radiological and chemical weapons. And the consequence of these acts of war was the British government kicking out a few diplomats and then allowing other diplomats to fill their, their spot. And, and, and Putin is a guy who only understands consequences. And if he thinks that something, if he thinks he does, that if he gets caught, bad things will happen to him then he won't do bad things. And if he thinks that nothing bad will happen, then he'll continue to do them. And so I felt really unsafe by the weak response of the British government in those two 
shocking uh, murders and attempted murders. But in terms of my own psychology, I've been fighting with Putin and the Russian government for 10 years. And you can't spend 10 years being nervous. It's just not physically possible. You eventually grow numb to the fear. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm numb. I'm sort of stupidly taking risks. I, I'm, I'm very careful, and I do a lot of things differently than other people do. But I don't spend my time looking over my shoulder. I don't spend my time living in fear. And, and the main reason I don't spend my time living in fear is that if I did, they would have already achieved most of their objective because people who live in fear moderate their behavior. They don't do things the way other people do things. And that's, what, that, that's, that's how the Russian government operates. They want, it's terror. They want to terrorize people so that they, they um, behave differently. And I'm not behaving differently. And the main reason that I'm not de- behaving differently is that Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer. He was brutally murdered. He was murdered because he was my lawyer. And I, I owe it to him not to be afraid because he wasn't afraid. And I owe it to him to get justice for him. And, and I'm not going to back down with any of the stuff that they're doing. And, and maybe they'll get to me one day and that will be a terrible thing, probably worse for my family than for me because I won't know it after I'm dead. But, but um, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna allow them to get away with what they did. With Britain's response to Litvinenko and the Skripals, felt as though the British government was a little bit scared of Putin. Are, are they right to be? Because, because what you're saying is actually a, a more severe response would check his behavior. There's obviously geopolitical concerns that people have, and Britain doesn't want to start World War Three. But what would an appropriate response have been, do you think? Well, it, it all comes back to the Magnitsky Act. The Magnitsky Act has found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. A small number of people have stolen all the money in the country. And they don't keep that money in Russia. They keep it in the West. And we have huge leverage in London in particular, because so much Russian money is in London. And the best way of responding to bad actions is to freeze their assets, because they value money more than human life. And if the British government had gone out and frozen the assets of people connected to the Russian government, large amounts of assets, there'd be never another bad action by Russia in the UK ever. So there are two things that the Magnitsky Act does. It's, it's about asset freezing, but it's also about visa bans. And those two things together really hit them where it hurts. Obama signed uh, the Magnitsky Act in America in 2012. Here in the UK, we signed it a couple of years ago. It's only really come into force uh, this year. And I've heard you say this before, but Dominic Raab was someone that you met a few years ago and was an early adopter, really, of your thinking and has really championed this cause. I met Dominic Rabb in 2012. He was a, I would, I would call him an obscure backbench MP and a really good guy. And, and I met him and I told him the Magnitsky story. And you could just tell that he was a man of, of, of real principle. And Dominic Rabb, when I told him the story, he took up the Magnitsky Justice Act or Justice Campaign and he became the, the main champion in the British Parliament for the Magnitsky Act. And, and, and it's really interesting because you can tell who the rising stars are long before they ever rise. And you can just tell that this guy was so smart, clear thinking, knowing how to make things happen. And he and, and the government, the British government, and successive British governments didn't want to do a Magnitsky Act. They didn't want to upset the Russians. And he found ways to, to navigate all of the opposition and we eventually, we couldn't get a Magnitsky Act passed, but we, what he did was he, he came up with a, with a, a piece of a Magnitsky Amendment to, to the uh, legislation. And as, as he built this whole process up and as he kept on uh, navigating it through the different complexities of parliament and government, his, his star started to rise. And he went from being a um, backbench MP to being a junior minister. And then eventually he became the foreign secretary. And it's really important that he became the foreign secretary for this, for this purpose, because even, so the Magnitsky Act was, was passed, but, but, but then we needed it implemented. And 
and so many previous foreign secretaries and prime ministers are all advised by their bureaucrats, you know, don't rock the boat, don't do this stuff. But this was Dominic's, this was his, his one of his, you know, the, the, probably one of the most important things he'll have ever done in his life, which is to create a, a, a piece of legislation to, for victims of human rights all around the world. And he wasn't going to listen to the bureaucrats and he made it all happen. And so, you know, whether you love him or hate him, and, and I, I, obviously I think he's the best thing out there, but there are others that don't, but whatever, um, you know, he, he deserves, he's a hero here on this particular, on this portfolio and everybody should applaud him for it, whether you like him in other areas or not. You took Sergei's widow to see him a few weeks ago. It must have been very emotional. It was truly emotional. We, we, we went on the day that he was introducing in Parliament the implementation of the Magnitsky Act, and most importantly, the sanctioning of 25 Russian officials who killed Sergei Magnitsky. And we um, were invited to his office, Sergei's widow, Sergei's son, Nikita, myself, and we sat in his office while he spoke at Parliament, and while he told the story of Sergei Magnitsky to the Parliament, and as he sanctioned the people who killed him. And then he came back to his office and sat with, with uh, Natalia, Sergei's widow, and he told her how important Sergei's sacrifice was to, what, to, to, to where we all are now in the world, and that, that his sacrifice, and that Sergei's death might have been tragic, but it wasn't meaningless. And, and to, to hear that, to hear him say that to, to Sergei's widow, really, you know, I, I'm, I'm moved just talking about it right now. There are 49 names on that list uh, that, that Britain will initially take action against, asset freezing and visa bans. 25 of them are Russian. 49 seems like quite a small number. I mean, is, is, this, is this a good start or, or, or is it slightly underwhelming? It's a good start. But the the the, um, the emphasis should be on the word start. Uh, if 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 no other people are sanctioned, then this would be a horrible um, catastrophe. It, yeah. it would be a you know a, a, I mean there should be thousands of people sanctioned, thousands of people sanctioned. The the terrible things that go on around the world deserve many many more people, and this is a very very powerful tool to to freeze assets. We live, in a we live in a world of, of globalization where people move around, they move their money around, and people do terrible things in a lot of countries, and then they want to come and buy a, buy a villa on Belgrave Square or send their kids to fancy boarding school. And, and that may not sound like a terrible thing to take away from them, but for somebody with a lot of money and a lot of power, it's, it's, it's deeply upsetting for them to have that taken away from them. And... And it's powerful, and, and it's something which should be used liberally against bad people all around the world. And, and some people say, you know, it's not our business to be policing the world. It's not our business to be, you know, getting involved in this. We need money in the UK. But, you know, if you sanction two or 3,000 people, you don't need their money. It's like, do, do we need crime? Do we need, like, drug lords' money in, in the city of London? I think anyone, everyone would say, no, of course we don't. So why do we need somebody involved in a genocide or things like that? And so. I think that we can, we can have a um, moral foreign policy and, 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 and do this because it targets the individuals. It doesn't go after the whole country. We can still do business with China and we can, we can sanction the people who are running the concentration camps for the Uyghurs out there. Um, we can sanction the Russians who are involved in Magnitsky's killing and we can continue to have foreign, foreign relations with Russia. You can do both things. I mean, you know the investment world inside out. Do you get the sense that... In London financial circles, people have been perhaps a little bit wary of taking action because they say, well, if you start freezing assets, that's going to undermine London as a global financial centre. You get capital flight. Then we don't have the money to redistribute across the country to spend on schools and hospitals. Do you think that that fear is real? Well, I, I, I mean, so if you take that to a lot, it's a logical extreme, then we should welcome in all heroin dealers and all, all cocaine dealers and all you know, pimps running prostitution networks and pedophiles with, with money. I mean, you know, what do we need them? I mean, wh where do we draw the line? I mean, we, we should have, we should say that people involved in genocide should not, you know, we don't, you know what, if, if our standard of living is a tiny, tiny bit less because we're not going to have genocide people keep their money in London, you know, I, I, I'd be willing to make that sacrifice. And I bet you most people in Great Britain would as well. And in, but in financial centers, do people think like that? 
the financial centers, these people are, are, are automatons. They're, they're trying to maximize profit. They'll do whatever the rules say they should do. And, and it's not, they're, they're not, they don't make policy. They're just trying to maximize profits. And you can't have somebody maximizing profits telling you what to do. You know, you, you have to run a foreign policy based on, on national interests. And I think it's in the British national interest to run a moral foreign policy. I think most people would agree. Um, I, I guess I was just trying to understand if, if within financial circles, people felt the same way that you did, or whether you're a bit of an no, outlier. No, of, co- of course not. They're, t- they're, they're total scumbags. They, they just want to make <laughs> money, money, money. Oh, I mean, that's what people presume. It's a shame to hear it clarified. It's, it's totally true. And, and, um, and that's why they're not the ones who make the rules. The, the people in government make the rules, and they should do so on, on basis of national interest, not, not on the basis of you know, how some banker who's got a big house in Chelsea wants to be at a bigger house. It's not, it doesn't help everybody else, it just helps his house. You've become more of a political activist now. Do you miss the investment world? Well, I, I, I would say that, that I had a fun time doing the investment stuff when I was younger. And it, and it was interesting and it was challenging and, and it's great to succeed and, and you know, it's great to, to have a scorecard. You, you keep your score with money and, and that's all fun and interesting. But I, I would say it's, it's, it's literally a thousand times more satisfying fighting for justice than it is fighting for money. And there's nothing better than, you know, when I, was, when I sat in, in Dominic Rabb's office and, and he honored Natalia Magnitsky and recognized the sacrifice that, that she had made by losing her husband but but that his sacrifice would lead to the saving of lives you know there's 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 nothing that that can beat that that moment and moments like that in terms of having meaning and doing something important you've had huge success not just here as we said in america various other countries around the world have adopted the the suggestions the policies that you've you've recommended and i'm sure you continue to lobby uh, for for an extension of those and for other countries to adopt them are there other political causes you can see yourself getting involved in well, I, I, everything that I'm doing is somehow connected to human rights. And so I, I, um, uh, I, I'm, there's no way I have the bandwidth to get, get I mean, the, the number of tragedies and the terrible things going on that I learn about through my Magnitsky work, you know, is overwhelming. I became aware of the, of the genocide against the Uyghur minority in China. You, you have a, a small religious minority in China that are being literally eradicated, like in the Holocaust, like what the Nazis did right now. We, you know, we said never again, and they're doing it right now. There's a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. They're forcibly sterilizing Uyghur women. They're, they're, they're cutting off their hair and using it to sell it for wigs. It, it's just the most appalling thing there ever was. I, I didn't know about that until I got involved in this, and I became aware of, of the Uyghur cause a few years ago. And when you become aware of that, well, you, can, you know, I, I can't sleep peacefully unless I know I'm doing something to help them. And then other situations, I, I get involved in all these other situations. And so I become a political activist well above and beyond the Magnitsky case, but it's all about victims of abuse and human rights abuse. And, and that's about as far as I can go because I only have so many hours in a day and so many days in a year and, and so many years left that, to, to do all this stuff. What's your assessment? You watch politics very closely. Obviously, you're, you're rightfully very respectful of Dominic Raab because of, because of what he's done. What's your assessment of, of, of British politics in general at the moment? I, 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 I'm thinking more in terms of Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. I mean, as a, as a, as a political observer, what's your analysis of Boris Johnson as a prime minister? Well, it's interesting. So I, I, I've met Boris Johnson. In fact, I met him several times. And he, he wrote an article in the Telegraph when he was the mayor of London about how we should have Magnitsky statues in London and the Magnitsky Act is an important thing. And he supported it in his prime ministership. And Keir Starmer, I, I also really like. Um, he's been really um, uh, clear-eyed and articulate about uh, the threat of Russia and the threat of China and so on. And so, I mean, when, when Jeremy Corbyn was running, I was so scared that he would become prime minister because he's a really from every on all the issues I care about. He was really not a good guy. He, he liked dictators. He liked Putin. He was anti-Semitic. I mean, and he wanted to like do all sorts of terrible stuff that I really disagreed with. But I, I kind of feel like um, uh, I kind of feel 
in a certain way, you know, I mean, yes, everyone can criticize any of these guys for a lot of different things, but but on 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 my portfolio of human rights and the Magnitsky Act, both uh, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer are, are pretty strong uh, guys, and so um, you know. Uh, it would it would be neither disaster one way or the other depending on uh, how the politics changes with in, in as far as i'm concerned with these two individuals you've written a book about your experiences called red notice which uh, to my embarrassment i've only just ordered so i haven't read it yet but i, I look forward to oh, reading you're, you're in for a treat it's, it's a good book you'll enjoy it <laughs> yeah i've heard um do you think you'll write more books is that something that you think you can see yourself doing well, as soon as I finish this podcast, I'm going to be getting back to the um, computer because I'm writing my second book. It's going to be called Freezing Order, and it's going to be a continuation of the Red Notice story. And, and uh, 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 I think it'll be just as enjoyable as Red Notice to read and, and just as shocking, I think. Well, I look forward to reading them both. Uh, Bill, this has been such a treat. I can't thank you enough for, for giving me your time and for telling us your story in such detail. You've really lived through such a horrific experience. Um, you handle it all just so well. It's uh, it's remarkable. Well, it's nice of you to say. Um, it, it's been it's, there's been a lot of highs and lows, but um, um, we're we, I think we're 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 making a lot of progress. We're winning. We're getting Magnitsky acts around the world. We're uh, after the UK. We're we're expecting Australia to do a Magnitsky act, and then the grand prize will be the European Union if we can get the Europeans on board which is the hardest group to get on board. Um, the bad guys will have really nowhere to go. Well, that's a message of hope. Bill, thank you so much and good luck with your second book. Thank you. Well, there you go, Bill Browder. What an amazing man. Um, I mean, the times I felt guilty asking more questions about it because it's so harrowing, but I just think the detail is so important for people to hear to know exactly what we're dealing with. Um, ultimately, I suppose it ends on a, on a note of hope because governments around the world are adopting those recommendations of visa bans and asset freezing, which Bill thinks and, and many other people think will hopefully improve the behaviour of these repressive regimes so that people like Sergei don't have to go through that awful death um, and that dirty money can be kept out of, of countries. Uh, and, and financial centres like London. So he has done a phenomenal job in lobbying governments around the world uh, and honouring his friend's legacy. What an amazing guy. Uh, I've put a link to his book in the show notes, uh, Red Notice, uh, so that you can buy that if you would like to uh, If you would like to read that. Um, obviously, and it feels a bit cheap um, promoting my own book on the back of it, but I have written a book called Politically Homeless, which is now available. I'll put the link um in the show notes to that as well. You can pre-order a signed copy. Uh, it'll be out in October. Uh, a very exciting thing to have done. Um, and I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, which if you're hearing this, then you definitely are, then it may well be right up your street. Um, it's it's a part memoir and a, um, a humorous analysis of... Um, frankly why politics has gone to shit over the last few years so um thank you for your emails as well don't forget you can email the show political party podcast at gmail.com and um, with guest recommendations any feedback as well um on the show uh and uh, and let me know where you listen that's always nice to know um nick got in touch um who'd like to have Michael Fabricant back on the show, uh, which is something I will definitely consider. Um, he listened to the Tom Tugendhat episode while walking the dog on Canuck Chase, which he says was a great combination. I can only imagine it was. It was. Uh, I enjoyed it, Nick, and I wasn't walking a dog on Canuck Chase, and I, so uh, I can imagine it would only be enhanced by that. Uh, he also says he supports Leicester City, uh, and uh, his sympathy for Nottingham Forest is limited. Um well, thank you to the many of you who tweeted me um, after Nottingham Forest fell out of the playoff spots in the last five minutes of the season. It's a tragedy I'm still processing. Um, but for all of you that got in touch to to say that you were thinking of me, it was very kind. Um, so, nice to end on a, on a positive, if possible. So, thank you, yes. And if you can... If you can find it within yourself to summon the energy to go onto iTunes and leave a positive review of the show, it genuinely helps it get it up the charts and it helps other people find it. So in advance of you doing that, thank you very much. 
and I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.